Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable and successful for years to come. My expertise is in the medical field and is focused on coding, billing, reimbursement, auditing, and basically the entire revenue cycle management. But the business of medicine is also about legal issues in healthcare, regulatory restrictions, flexibilities, especially during the pandemic, practice management, financial accounting, and physician entrepreneurship. So today, our conversation will focus on establishing behavioral health services in a group practice or starting groups. There are several groups also that include nurse practitioners and PAs and mid-level providers that have started practices and integrated behavioral health into primary care. And with me today, I have an expert that helps in figuring out the financials and operations to establish these services independently or to help integrate them into a current practice. And that would be fellow NSCHBC member Adam Middleton. Adam is the founder and president of Healthcare Advisory Network out of Dayton, Ohio. Adam works as a healthcare business consultant for hospitals, physician groups, and healthcare related entities. Since 2008, Adam has consulted with physician practices, post-acute providers, and hospitals with particular focus on physician compensation, fair market value, management, operations, finance, and strategic planning. Adam is a current member of our NSCHBC Society and MGMA. He has been a member of the Ohio Hospital Association Legislative Committee as well, and the Greater Dayton Area Hospital Association Disaster Committee. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Thanks, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. So when we get into talking about behavioral health and mental health, so I have to just do a disclosure right now. This is kind of a, a side interest for me. My you know, interest, or I should say my subject matter expertise, is more on um, specialties that are, I, would, I don't want to say medical, because I really feel like behavioral health and mental health obviously has a clinical side to it, but more of my cardiology, surgery, things like that is where my wheelhouse is. But for behavioral health and mental health services, I am noticing in the uh, greater healthcare field now that it's being much more recognized than it has in the past, not only through the public health emergency and uh, virtual care, but also being recognized as a needed service. And so I'm really happy that you're uh, here today. And I wanted to just kind of get your feedback and ask you some questions on integrating this and how to really break into, you know, um, putting this in a practice uh, setting. So here we go. How can this be integrated into a practice? And I guess I should ask you first, is this just for family practice or general practice providers? I would say that the bulk of the integration is going to be in family practice. Um, also, some internal medicine, it's going to be a little bit dependent upon um, some of, of who they're taking care of. Uh, you see a lot of mental health issues, of course, in family practice. I, I help pr manage a couple different practices uh, through our company, and about 40% of our patients um, have some sort of mental health need. So yeah, that's one of the reasons that I got very interested in integrating and working with practices to provide this type of, of care. And if you get into an internal 
um, in, internal medicine practice, oftentimes that patient population might be older, the Medicare age and above, and they also have a, a high need when it comes to mental health and behavioral health, uh, whether it's through uh, proper medication management or the potential for 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 therapy. Um, just as a side note back to you with your interest that you see with cardiology and, and the mental health needs that are there, um, prior to becoming a consultant, I actually worked in a, in a um, dedicated heart hospital and our number three diagnosis was depression. So after you're doing surgery and doing things with with those that you know are in need of the physical health, the mental health was a close close behind because, um, you know, people at that time, they're kind of thinking about their mortality and some of the issues that are happening. So mental health is, you know, highly integrated into the needs. And so a physical physician needs to be thinking about that because obviously your mental health, your mental condition helps your physical condition or deteriorate your physical condition. So the intertwining of the two, they, they just can't be separated. Thank you. So when I'm looking at some of this information, and I was doing some research before we got on the call today, I found it interesting that it seems like Medicare has really been kind of in the forefront of allowing for screenings and really understanding how important those screenings are. And I would think with the pandemic, this has really come to the forefront. Do you agree? Oh, yes. The, the, the need for mental health has just skyrocketed uh, during the pandemic. And I think that some of that is it's not that there necessarily was um, less need. I think that one of the areas that has really kind of opened up was that a lot of the stigma for mental health has been uh, basically stripped away. And some of that started during the uh, prior to the pandemic when it came to the opioid crisis. And, you know, for people that you know, we're, we're suffering from a substance use dis disorder. Um, there, there, there was a, a huge demand that was starting to be placed upon the healthcare system. And a lot of that stigma started to be, get stripped away. And I think during the pandemic, more and more of that, you know, came down to because we had an opportunity to kind of see what, um, you know, either isolation or fear, kind of what it was doing to a person. Um, so, you know, the, the pandemic and Medicare um, kind of went hand in hand in, in increasing the ability for providers to take care of patients in a mental health um, situation with the screenings that, that were there. And even also the way that they're, they're now paying for mental health and um, allowing for uh, just pure telephone versus the crackdown they kind of did on telehealth with physical providers. So, yeah, I would agree. CMS and Medicare, Medicaid, um, those plans have been uh, instrumental in helping providers kind of tackle the issues for, for mental health and being reimbursed for those. And I think that, and I've talked about this just with my colleagues and my friends, you know, I've always been somebody who's been, I, and I hate to put this and kind of laterally put it as far as a mental health thing, but, you know, positive, upbeat, you know, never really get down about anything until you get quarantined. And then all of a sudden you don't have, and I think it's about choice when you don't have the choice to go anywhere, you don't have the choice to, you know, get out of your house or, or, you know, meet friends or even see relatives or go to a funeral. I mean, that really plays on, you know, your psyche and, and how you feel about things. And then I'm thinking about the frontline workers, you know, during the pandemic and the burnout that I'm seeing, I'm sure that has something to do with some of it as well. I couldn't agree more. I've got a friend of mine who's a consultant, and he actually was was contracted by the state of New York to work with frontline providers. So they could call him night or day with questions and 
Um, he's, uh, he's not, he's not a mental health expert, but he's more of a kind of a life coach. Like and, um, he, uh, he could, he told me quite a few stories that, you know, and, and he would then connect somebody into a mental health provider. Cause some people wanted to talk with him because there still was that stigma. So they would start with a life coach and then he would connect them, you know, to the, to um, someone that was basically professionally licensed to handle some of the issues that were there. Right. No, I just, I, and it's just given me, I think a new appreciation for what behavioral health and mental health, not only what it is, but what it offers and how it really um, is, is a medical specialty. It's not just a, a clinical, you know, subjective specialty, if you will. And I think that the pandemic, if anything good has come from it, and I, I say that loosely, is just being able to empathize with this particular specialty. So in saying all that, let me ask you a question, because obviously we're here to figure out how someone can bring this into their practice, whether it be general practice, family practice, internal medicine, or another uh, specialty. First of all, do you have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist to um, treat patients for behavioral health? No, there's just like any, any specialty that, that might be out there, you're going to have different levels and different tiers of professionals that can um, assist a patient. And what you, what you see oftentimes, um, and some of the models that are out there when it comes to integrating into a delivery system, there's, there's probably three that I can think of kind of off the top of my head. And one of them would be kind of the, the FQHC model where you've got the federally qualified health clinics and they're actually required by CMS, who you know, obviously funds them at their startup and then has the enhanced payments, that mental health is actually has to be part of the delivery. And that has to be um, integrated actually into their their system. So really, um, I didn't know it was yes. required. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So that yeah, that's one of the that's one of the areas. I mean, you've got to have a dentist and you have to have mental health. So there okay. are some things in an FQHC that that you have to have. And there's a, a variety of different levels that can take care of that patient. So um, it's kind of, it, I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of the alphabet soup of, of social work. And so you can have psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed, independent social workers, independent or licensed social workers, case managers, um, CDCAs, which are more on the, on, on the uh, drug and alcohol side. So there's a variety of different, professionals that actually can be part of the mental health care team that can be integrated, obviously, into a um, system, whether it's an FQHC. Another model is one where you get a, you get a larger system, like a, a large group, whether it's a hospital-employed group of physicians or maybe a large group of family practitioners that integrate family care or, or mental health into their family care practice um, because they might be part of either an ACO um, or uh, primary care first or, or one of the other models that, they, that they're receiving capitated payment and having the ability to integrate, whether it's a psychiatrist, psychologist, um, it might be a nurse practitioner that's specially trained to be able to take care of those patients. It's all about that entire um, care loop and care continuum. So you've got the physical side, but you also want to be able to control and manage the mental health issues that those patients do have, because, um, you know, frankly, it's it's part of your expense for your ACO or, or your capitated program 
because um, if, if that patient does end up needing hospitalization or additional medications or anything along that, you know, it, it factors into your overall spend. So from a business perspective, it's great to be able to have that professional there and at hand to be able to, to take that, to take that um, patient care over kind of on the spot. Um, the, the third model is one that I'm very familiar with, and that is one where a primary care physician that may not be part of an ACO, but they want to actually be able to provide more core services, they'll actually set up a, a system where either they bring in a uh, nurse practitioner who is specially trained for this, um, or potentially even a, a contract uh, where they'll set up a contract with a provider group to, to come in and do um, their mental health because family practitioners oftentimes aren't overly comfortable with mental health and behavioral health issues, especially when it gets into some of the more complex medications. Some are, and some, some will you know, very easily tackle that, while others will work with a trained nurse practitioner to handle the medication management for that patient um, or potentially have a agreement with a psychiatrist that um, will come in and typically they're coming in via telehealth into the office or referring out to telehealth and being able to take care of that patient um, underneath their family practice tax identification number through contracted services with those mental health providers. It sounds almost like something that I set up recently with a practice that was a bariatric practice where even though the general surgeon was comfortable talking, you know, diet and, and medications and a healthy lifestyle with patients of di diabetic nature who were also getting surgery, they brought in a dietitian to make sure that, because they weren't comfortable on how far out some of those things go. I mean, I realize it's completely different, but maybe a similar model type thing where they brought in that, that secondary provider to really tackle some of those services. Does that sound similar, kind of like what they're doing? Oh, not only similar, a bariatric surgeon also has to have a mental health consult with all oh, of their right. patients. So right. okay. um, I've, I've just helped a provider set up his practice and they have a um, psychologist that has, that they've contracted that comes in, interviews their patients. Sometimes they do that via virtual, via telehealth. Um, but uh, in that particular case, they typically do a face-to-face uh, -face visit with, with them. Right. Now, here's something that I think, um, so something I wanted to bring forward to our listeners. So just so you know, before we get into podcasting and we talk about this, um, Adam and I and, and the different guests I've had on the podcast, we do prepare before the meeting. We may not get a, a live conversation, but between emails and just some different correspondence and communication, we do talk about some things be, because we want to not only be prepared, but I just find it so interesting to dive into some things. So I was talking to Adam about coding and he's like, you're funny. You're a coder. <laughs> you stay in your lane. I'm like, I am happy to stay in my lane because I like your lane. But in saying that, one of the things that um, has was brought to my attention from behavioral health as I was looking into it, you know, CMS has the annual depression screening and everything seems to be timed when it comes to behavioral health with Medicare. You know, how much time are you spending? And obviously the Public health emergency is also giving us a, a lot of timed um, options for audio only. But you brought up something very interesting. So I did a segment not too long ago on a, a webinar talking about how you utilize medical assistance, for example. And in talking about behavioral health services, I noticed that the 
the change in some of the language of the codes of who the provider has to be, instead of it used to saying physician uh, and or psychologist, now it says physician or qualified health care professional. And I was asking you, you know, who, who can do this? And I really liked your response to that as far as, you know, handing over the, the iPad or, or the device as far as the face-to-face. But can you elaborate on, you know, what the that provider is taking responsibility for to make sure it is a qualified healthcare professional? Sure. So when a screening is being done at a practice, as long as the as long as the staff has uh, kind of a minim- minimal training, you can allow an, an MA or staff member that's non-licensed to um, basically hand over the screening test to that to the individual. So the individual. Um, and I, there's a couple of companies out there that you know, I mentioned iPad because you know they actually have the screenings on an iPad and the patient can, as they sit down and, and register, um, they can actually go through some of these screenings. And those results then just get ported into their EMR or up to the front desk and that front desk and then do whatever they, they want to do from, uh, from a clinical documentation. Uh, but the overall piece of that is you, you want to make sure that the physician um, or nurse practitioner PA that qualify, you know, that matches the qualified definition for Medicare, that they are present and they can actually do something about it. So if a patient does come in and they do a screening and that screening shows that they do need some intervention, um, they, the provider is now responsible to make sure that they're doing that intervention. It may be a matter of, you know, uh, setting up the proper referral, or you could have somebody that has suicidal ideations and they're noting that on their on their form, um, you know, that patient shouldn't be allowed to leave the practice. Um, right. More than once, the practice that I, I work with, and we have a lot of mental health um, uh, cases that come through our primary care side. You know, more than once we've called we've called the um, squad and sometimes the police um, just because those patients have suicidal ideation, and you you can't just let them walk out the door. There's you know obviously there's um, not just ethical, but um, medical liability issues if that happens. So you do have to you know, be prepared that if you are going to do these screenings, that you're following the right protocols and you have that set in place to make sure that patient is going to be taken care of. And, and I think also just to add to that, you know, remember that a qualified healthcare professional, not just the definition in CPT AMA, but also in the regulatory uh, information with Medicare and other third-party payers, it means somebody that can independently bill to the payer. So a, a medical assistant cannot, an RN cannot. The, the ancillary staff members can, like Adam said, they can hand it over. They can assist in the beginning checklist. But when it comes to the responsibility of that patient's care, you're looking at physician or mid-level provider that, that actually can independently bill for that service. So as we're moving forward in in some of these, you know, just some of the nuances when it comes to integrating into a practice, I know a lot of practices are very excited about all the technology now that's available, whether it be, you know, audio and video, audio only, and all that. And I'm seeing a lot with, because the, after the PHE ends, the Consolidated Appropriations Act is allowing for mental health and behavioral health certain codes, obviously, and certain diagnoses. Everything is tied to diagnoses, people. It's not a free-for-all, but just that they're going to allow that um, to be still billed from a telehealth standpoint. But I've noticed that a lot of providers are really, I don't want to say overly excited about the 
the phone call part or the the um, telecommunicative part, instead of really understanding there is also an in-person part. That that actually, I mean, I, I saw some of the rules about every, you know, six months and, you know, for a new patient, they need to make sure that with it, they haven't been seen in the last 12 months, just making sure that there is a presence um, from an in-person visit. And actually, one of the things I saw in the Appropriations Act saying, by the way, an audio and video telehealth is not in person. <laughs> they were very clear on that. So can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit, just just to maybe confirm what I'm reading? Is that accurate, that there really is an in-person piece for these patients? Yeah, you are correct. So the way that we've got our process set up at one practice that does um, all of its all of its mental health is done via telehealth. It's it's a kind of a unique practice where the patient actually comes to the office, but the nurse practitioner she's actually offsite, and you know she's she's actually um, a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. They're like gold to be able to find these these nurse practitioners. Um, and there's also uh, PAs can also go for that certification or or similar underneath their boards. But the but they are in tough demand. I mean, they, and that's why I say that it's like finding gold. Um, we actually contracted uh, through a third party for quite a while to do that, but it was very expensive. So we were able to, to hire our own. So um, what we do is we, we refer those patients that have been seen by the family practitioner. Um, they come back to the practice and actually they're, they're set up in a, a room that's specifically designed for telehealth. Um, but instead of our practitioner being at the office and going into their home, it's vice versa. They're actually at our practice and the nurse practitioner is at her home office and does the, does the consultation and the med reviews and everything she needs to do from there. Um, because of that unique setup, our, our family practitioners are on site. So if there is an issue that, that needs to be taken care of, then it's very easy for that patient basically to be walked across the hallway and seen by the family practitioner. Um, but we all, we do have in our protocols and um, I've advised others to make sure that if they are um, utilizing telehealth as their primary vehicle, they do need to have a, a process to be seeing that patient on at least the six month basis, but potentially even more um, dependent upon uh, that patient's healthcare need. Yeah, and I, it was interesting what you were saying as far as protocols. What Adam is alluding to, and actually we'll shout out um, our compliance guy, Sean Wise, because he talks about um, making sure that you have a compliance manual. This is probably, I would say, gosh, even, I don't want to say more important, but more um I guess, imperative to have a compliance manual and very specific, not only with HIPAA, but how you need to, you know, you said you have nurse practitioners that are working from their home, physicians in the office, patients may be, you know, telecommuting or in the office. I would think that your compliance manual would have to be pretty detailed to follow the rules and not only the time-based codes, but to make sure anybody who's coming in and reporting and billing for these services is pretty accurate as far as making sure the practice is protected. Is that, would that you agree? I would say the more national society meetings I go to, the thicker my compliance manual gets. Let's put it that way. <laughs> there's, always, <laughs> there's always some, there's always something it's new always on something. compliance. <laughs> and I kind of go, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't think of that or who did think of that. So um, yeah, so are definitely have to uh, be careful and um, you know be proactive, making sure that your policies and procedures are are ready to go. 
So now we're going to just kind of touch on that integrating into a practice. So let me start with a, let's say a primary care practice that's already um, existing. They already have a client base, but they're noticing that their client base in from a diagnosis perspective is starting to lean towards some, like you were saying, depression issues or just some issues that they feel that fall into this behavioral health or mental health category. How do they start this up? Do they just start offering, you know, visits or consultations or do they hire somebody who's specialized? I mean, it sounds like any kind of mid-level that's specialized in this is hard to find. So how do they actually start in an existing practice? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, it's kind of the crawl, walk, run philosophy. So if you're a practice that you do want to start to offer this, it's not a bad idea to figure out, you know, is there a, a contractual way that you can work with a third party company to put together a, a plan? Um, you want to make sure that when you do that, that you're really looking at, at your, at your financials on that. You just, you've got to be smart. And I was, you know, we did it in one, one of our practices and we lost money for a long time on that because the need was so great. That the ownership decided that in that particular area for mental health, they knew that they were going to lose, they were going to lose some money on it. Um, but they wanted to treat the patients in the best manner. Um, where, where I would say that's kind of the crawl um, stage where you, you might set up where you're going to refer. Um, and it, you also may, instead of actually doing it underneath your own banner, you may just set up a, a good working relationship with a good referral source. So, you know, somebody in the community that um, you know, is a good mental health provider and can get access quickly for your patient. Um, you just set up, you know, basically a nice professional um, referral uh, arrangement with them um, that obviously there's no money exchanged or anything along that line, but you're taking care of those patients. So, um, and to be able, the next piece of that is be able to make sure that you're getting that medical record back. So you can actually see what's going on with that, with that patient. Um, that's, that's kind of the crawl method. Um, as you're starting to walk and then run, that's when you really are starting to say, you know, we've got a particular amount of volume here and we, we do want to kind of run the financial and see, is this a position that we should hire that whether it's part-time or a full-time position that can be sustained and be able to treat our patients really in that full manner, both from a physical medicine, but also a behavioral mental health um, side of it. Um, and as that proceeds, uh, that's when you're that's when you're kind of running. Um, and what I would say we're running is then you're actually looking to say, all right, we can do, you know, we might have a nurse practitioner that's helping with medication management, might be doing some counseling. Do we actually also start to bring in counseling and, you know, LISWs and, and other social workers that are taking care of that patient at a different level than what a nurse practitioner, because typically that nurse practitioner is doing a lot of mental health um, medication management and that type. Now you potentially could actually go into a social work where you're actually doing more along the lines of helping them with issues that are, whether it's, you know, family-based issues, might be past trauma. Um, there's a whole plethora of different things that you potentially could bring in and have a true full service type of atmosphere, which kind of alludes back to what I talked about with the FQHCs, because many of them do that kind of soup to nuts from physical to mental. You know, what's interesting about this is is now that I'm, I'm just listening to all the information that you're giving us, which is amazing, by the way, 
I, I noticed that I think there's maybe a some a, a deaf ear here when it comes to behavioral mental health that it's not just mental behavioral also falls into like you were saying the opioid crisis and mm -hmm. you know drug and possibly alcohol abuse and things that you know demons people are dealing with that they're trying to move on from or get therapy for and it sounds like that could fall into this as well oh yes definitely and that's that is a preponderance of the problem is is addictions that might be out there um yeah, there is a, a whole industry that is, um, you know, kind of sadly booming when it comes to substance use disorder. Um, that's everything from the, the counseling aspects to um, uh, what's called IOP and PHP, so the group therapies and recovery housing. I mean, there's, there's an entire industry uh, that is surrounding the uh, substance use disorder epidemic to try to assist and help with that. And the other part of it is the, the the feds and state. You know, they have they have put a ton of money and resources into trying to help solve this problem. And there's no easy solution. Um, every substance use disorder patient is their own individual story, and some of them, um, you know, are very sad. Um, some of them are ones where it kind of leaves you scratching your head. But at the same point. It truly is a disorder, and there are numerous different um, organizations that are trying to solve that problem from a lot of different angles. Um, I've been blessed to be able to be part of, of those. I actually chair the board for a large group here in Dayton that covers um, all aspects of mental health, and we have 32 different programs addressing all types of mental health and behavioral health, including substance use disorder. So there's... there's uh, there's a more problem everywhere. Yeah. There's a problem everywhere. And there's just, and um, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work to try to find the solutions. Well, and I, I saw that on the, uh, the government site where I keep looking, it's almost like a, it's almost like a sickness with me looking at the PHE. When is it going to end? Right? Well, it's, <laughs> it's just for, I'm just looking at it for the pandemic, but I did notice that because it has all the public health emergencies. So even if there's a hurricane or anything like that, but the opioid crisis has ha been under public health emergency for six years and it's oh, yeah. just, it, they keep re they keep renewing it. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, those and they do that for federal dollars and obviously to get a balance for the Medicaid that they're opening up, they have to have that. But um, I think a lot of people needs to know that you need to know that it's not just mental, it's also behavioral health. And these things are also tied to specific diagnoses, specific services and procedures. So everyone really do your due diligence on that. You've got therapies, you've got procedural, you've got time-based codes, you've got um, HICS-PICS codes that are Medicare-only codes. So really be you know aware of that. But one thing that you, you mentioned, and I just wanted to not really warn the audience, maybe just caution our listeners, is when you use a third party vendor for some of this stuff. And I use it for some practices for care management services because they just don't have the staff to to really start those services. But care management is great because it's basically a virtual way to check in on a patient up to 20 minutes a month to make sure that you're lowering the um, the the readmissions for patients who have chronic conditions and are basically decompensating and are in are in a kind of a detriment situation. Well, what we've noticed is that there's an on occasion where some of these third party uh, vendors tend to not tell us that they're offshoring some of their staff and just be kind of a little caution to our listeners. Medicare does not pay for any 
services that are outside the country. So um, there, there's actually, I, I would say that's 99.5% true. There's one service they pay if you're traveling. So if let's say you're, you decided to take a trip to Paris and you need an ambulance to get to the local hospital, they'll pay for the ambulance for you to get there, but they won't pay for anything once you get there. I'm not laughing in a way that it's funny. I'm laughing because that's so ridiculous. But and, you know that's the only thing they'll pay for. You would have to actually have travel health insurance to be covered there. But they're very specific about that. So just do your due diligence. If you do start with a third party company for, um, you know, logistical reasons, just to make sure you can afford it before you bring it back into your office, maybe just make sure you're checking with those companies that they're not offshoring some of the clinical telehealth services. That would be bad. Yeah, it would be. But in this case, we're talking about um, provide provision of of mental health through either nurse practitioners or physicians. So each one of those would have actually have to be licensed in the state yes. that they're providing that. So yes. um, I understand from a chronic care management and the other rules, but I don't think that's going to be as applicable in this particular case. That's good. Glad to hear that. I was, I was just wondering, because I know sometimes when you get with third party vendors or, you know, you're, you have a sure. middle go between, you just never know. So I yep. make sure Agreed. that. So you mentioned, and I, you know, of course, I always follow back to the revenue cycle management or the reimbursement side of it. You need to have a good RCM set up, correct, to make sure that you are not losing money, even though it's a great offering for a patient. At least try to break even. I'm, I'm assuming. What, what do you recommend there? Yes, and um, it's a lot of it will depend upon what your case, uh, your payer mix is going to be. Um, and some of it, of course, is, you know, the, the level of, of care that you're providing that patient, um, you know, dependent upon the state you're in, a lot of the patients that you potentially might be seeing are going to be Medicaid patients. Um, so you've obviously to take care of those patients, uh, you've got to be diligent on, you know, what you're paying for the resource to take care of that patient. And um, that's, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, my provider that did this, they had a high Medicaid population. So they knew that they were actually going to lose money, even if, even if that provider is um, seeing patients pretty much every minute of the hour and billing appropriately, they probably still were going to be um, losing money in the in that particular case, or at least trying to get a little closer to break even. Um, but if you do have a, a payer mix that's going to be a little bit more uh, favorable towards commercial um, or potentially more Medicare, it's going to be easier to come uh, closer to break even with that. But you do definitely have to dot your I's and cross your T's, making sure that the coding that's being documented, it's, it's appropriate, but obviously um, getting it to the, to the levels that are going to be sustainable for the practice. And if not, then it's got to be an evaluation of you know, what, is, what is the overall return. Um, if you're looking at the larger groups that are potentially in the ACOs and the other, um, you know, it's, a different, it's a different math equation because you're looking at all the downstream costs of that patient too. So um, a private practice that decides to do this, uh, you're going to, it's basically what comes in, what goes out. So um, it's a little bit easier calculation to perform. One of the things that um, I just wanted to, as we're kind of wrapping up some of this information, you know, the, you mentioned Medicare and Medicaid, and obviously the federal dollars, I, I'm so, and I don't want to use the word impressed, but so I guess that is a good word, that they've actually recognized this to the point where it needs funding. You know, it's, it's interesting that we just didn't have that in the past um, to the extent we do now. But from a, a commercial 
perspective, commercial insurance. I remember before we had ICD-10, oh my gosh, if we ever used any ICD-9 code from the 300 series, which was mental health, we're like, you knew you were going to get a denial. You knew you were going to be limited to five or 10 visits, but depending on what it was. How do you see that now? Is it any better when from a commercial plan or is it really just Medicare, Medicaid that have really stepped up their reimbursement? Well, I don't think that the commercial plans probably stepped up willingly, but most of the states now have mental health parity law. So a commercial plan has to pay for <laughs> Sorry, that health. was funny. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, it, it reminds me of what, what was going on with the uh, waiving the deductibles for a little bit and the co-pays for the COVID treatment. Somebody said, oh, look how great the commercial plans are. I'm like, they didn't do that willingly. They either had to do it or somebody was going to mandate they better do it. So, yeah. Right. So, and and some plans, some plans are better than others um, when it comes to the overall reimbursement for mental health and, um, you know, and basically their, their willingness to do that. And I think some of it has become that the stigma of mental health is not as severe as it used to be. There's still some out there, of course, but it's not as bad. And then, so that really kind of forces the commercial payers to really take a, a close look at their policies and, and how they treat their, frankly, how they treat their members who pay the bill. I agree. I just think it's just such an interesting topic. And I hope our listeners really found some insight today on how you can integrate this in your practice, what you need to do as far as having some of your um, qualified healthcare professionals really help with this situation and and how you can start it and then maybe integrate it into your practice uh, after the fact if you're you're using um, an outside uh, resource as well. But I think it would probably behoove a lot of physicians to really consider this integration, especially from a primary care standpoint, internal medicine, general practice, you know, because of just the federal dollars available if they really need to do that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a great option for family practitioners to take a look at and, you know, see if there is a path forward for them uh, to really kind of take care of the patient in a, in a more holistic manner. Great. Well, I, if you want to find out more about this topic, our annual conference is next month and Adam will be speaking live at the conference regarding behavioral health integration. So please go to the NSCHBC website to register for that. Also, as a reminder to our listeners, the NICHBC also has free webinars each month, and we also have a second quarter Medicare webinar update coming on June 22nd. So to get all of the rules and regulations that have been published over the last couple of months, please go to nschbc.org and go to our offerings for education, and hopefully you'll find something there that uh, you'll want to attend and enjoy. So we want to thank Adam today for your insight and your expertise. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Terry. You make this easy. I appreciate it. (laughs) So everyone, make it a great day and a great rest of your month. And thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.